I want you to write down what you define inerrancy as. Inerrancy. So if you don't know what that means, that's fine. Okay, time's up, pens down. Well, we're going to do a little bit of review, and I'm going to give you the layout of the class. Um, last time we had an introduction, and we're going to finish that today. Uh, so that's class one. Today, hopefully, probably not. I, I'm aware that classes usually go long, especially with good interaction, which is a plus. And so I'd rather, I'd rather you interact and talk with me and with each other than I cram information down your throat. Because um, I hated that when I was in seminary and other classes. So we're going to go, but this is a general outline. So these will be made available through Paul as well. But tonight we're going to try to get through eight. I, it's probably not going to happen. I have the material ready, but I'm, I'm realistic. As in, in my 30s now, I understand that <laughs> life is not always what, what you plan. So um, next week, remember, th- this one doesn't have one, but the bracketed numbers are what the, the important chapter I'd like you to read. I feel like the crux of, of the material so if you can't read 3 through 8, or you forget, then you read 6. If you can't read 9 through 13, read just 9, and so on. So I'll leave that up there a second. We're going to begin tonight, so be thinking, um, be ready to interact, get your talking hats on. I have a survey here about theology. Um, we're going to hand that out, and we're going to break up into five groups, or four. might do four, so i got three for Paul could join one of those, and we'll do it that way. Okay, so last week we talked about, or not last week, last class, we talked about the fact that everyone's a theologian, because everyone has thoughts about God. You can't escape it, right? Even an atheist has thoughts about God. What does he say? No God, he or she. And so that's an important concept, but an equally important concept that everyone is a theologian is that... It's not, theology or, or systematic theology is not an emptying of knowledge from one person to another. It's not just soaking up knowledge. It's action as well. It's practice. And so we're going to touch on that point heavily tonight. And I wanted to review that. I don't even know if I put this up last time. I think I did. But this is an important concept for us that when we think about theology, it is not just coming to this class and, and getting facts. It's practice as well. Good theology always includes practice. That's why some people call it doing theology. Because it's more than just the knowledge. It's more than just intellectual knowledge. Who remembers the ball illustration? (laughs) Who would like to share what that was about? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there was a ball in the box. And you felt the ball and everyone had a different answer. Why was that? Because it was all different. (laughs) I kind of tricked you all, right? What was I illustrating with that? What concept about knowledge or experience? This is the harder one. We interpret differently according to our experience. That That was one half of it. Very good. Thank you, Bernie. What was the other half? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. We come with presuppositions, and when we come to that ball, it's the same ball, but we interpret it differently because we have presuppositions, and our experience is different. It was a round ball. I didn't lie to you, even though I deceived you. Okay? But each one of you, I, I put you in groups, and we talked about that, and that's, that's really the way it is with knowledge. I carried that out then, and I said, we want, when we begin systematic theology, we want to come with humble hearts. 
that was one of the main points last time for me is that because, you know, we all have different experiences and that shapes our theology. Now, it's not a source of theology. We're going to find that out tonight, but it shapes how we view theology. Okay. Now, we're going to go to systematic theology's frame. Just like a house, right, we, we have to have material. And the material comes from somewhere. But before we get there, I want you to do a group exercise. The first thing I want you to do right now, so I'm going to give you three minutes in your group, once you're, once you're settled and ready, to talk about where do you think we get theology? What are the sources for your theology? Where do you think we get theology? Okay? So why don't you get into your groups and talk about that question. What are the sources for theology? You've got three minutes. Okay, so now I want you to read through this survey. I'm going to give you some more time. Okay, heads up. Here we go. I want you to read through the survey. It's got some pages. Just look at it. I want you to really look at the answers on this survey. Okay. Does anyone need an extra one? Okay, we're good. We're good. I think we're good. So I want you to take a minute to look through that yourself and with your group talk about, wow, I can't believe this because this was done this year. Well, last year. Okay. In the public, it was published, I think, in September or October. It was done by Ligoniers, which is R.C. Sproul's ministry. And they took a pretty good survey size of 3,000 people. And they went through and asked them these questions who, who were self-identified Christians. And I want you to think about what were their sources? How did they come to these conclusions? And what are the solutions that you might want to offer to these guys? So those are, what are their sources? How did they come to these conclusions? And what solutions can we offer? They were taken from a, a, everything. U.S., they did, a, they did a professional survey, cross-demographics, old, young, middle-aged, everyone. Everyone who self-identified as a Christian. So this was a professional survey. This isn't just like they went on the street. They, they hand-picked people. Different denominations. different denominations. But then they asked them an identifying question. Are you evangelical Protestant, essentially? So that was another subcategory. And you can see on the thing. So I'm going to give you about eight minutes now. To think about that and really read through this. I may stop you early if it seems like you've got good answers, but why don't you do that? Eight minutes. All right. Okay. So finish your thought and your writing and, and let's have a discussion. So I'll, I'll go, I'll open it up first to anyone and I'd like you to share what your group's kind of thought as a whole. So any, any thoughts on, on the survey or anything like that? Okay. Okay, so you went through and, and, and analyzed yourself. Okay, what did you what did you find? Yeah. So Barbara, you you ended up on the opposite end most times of what someone had answered. Is that kind of what you're saying? And it was shocking. I, I heard that word, shocking. Yeah. So authority of the local church is a, is an interesting question. It was very low on that one, I think. <laughs> Uh-huh. That, that's another big one. Even in even <laughs> That's right. So that's funny. So pastor sermons is another big one. Right? Like sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't, Barbara said. <laughs> okay? Yeah, the ones we don't like, we throw those out, right? And the other ones, oh amen. And okay. What else? What else? What other comments? Jen? 
Mm. The comment was that, you know, she would have liked to see people defend their answers. Why do you believe that, you know? Sometimes Americans just throw out an answer and we don't really know why. We just feel that way. Good. What else? Sad survey. Sad survey. Yeah. Some of the questions were edgy. Yeah. They were worded in such a way as maybe to create some tension. Why was it sad, Jim? What was your... Yeah, core beliefs are not believed in. I mean, I, I agree. Yeah. One more. Anyone else have any thought here on any, any significant point before I turn it over to the group questions? Mm, that's a great point. She said that, you know, it seems like a church attendance or a database makes us Christians. And so, like, most of them are below 50% of what we would agree as, like, those you must believe in to be a Christian. We just assume people are Christians. Yeah, that's good. Gail. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's a good question. What what denominations consider themselves evangelical? Well, probably like E-Free Church, Reformed Churches, um, Baptist, yeah, Presbyterian, probably for the most part conservative denominations, um, Bible, yeah, Bible churches, Brethren as a don, denomination, you know, like maybe even the closed Brethren too. I don't know how many of those they would have included, but... Mm, that may be true. Yeah, that's probably, that's true. Yeah, Assembly of God. The question would be, did did they, as a Leganeers, include them? I would I would doubt that they would include Mormons or probably Method. I I might I don't know about that one. That one's a hard one. That one's a hard one. But certainly, does that does that help, Gail? Though that's a broad, it's a pretty broad spectrum. Yeah, it's a good question. It makes you think. What are these churches teaching? And that's a perfect lead-in. Thank you, because that's a big question, isn't it? So what are the solutions? What did you come up with? I'm going to start with a group on the left here. What, what do you think might be, for the sake of time, two solutions? Read the Bible. That's a great one. <laughs> so read the Bible and show them the need for the Bible. That's a good one. Yeah. Read it in context. Uh, what was your other thing? Ask questions. That's good. Those are good. Okay. Not letting other people do our thinking in, in addition to kind of wrestling with the text. In a context. Yeah, those are good. Okay, so we have the Bereans as an answer. Yeah, that's that's good. So middle group. We got Bereans. Study the scripture to see if it's true. See what you're taught is true. What else? What else from this group here? Read other books. That's a great one. Why would you do that? It's a help. Not all of us have a lot of training, and we don't necessarily need that, but there are passages that confuse us. Yeah, that's good. What else? Mm-hmm. Okay. Education system. Media, education source, tradition. Church involvement in the community, out and be light. We, yeah, we let other people shape how... In technical term might be narrative. <laughs> it's a passe term now, but yeah. Okay, Robert and then Ruben. Yeah, page two says, open your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> look at open your eyes. Look at war. Look at everything that's going on. I see the hand over here. I'm gonna, I'll get you first in this group, Joy. I'll get you first. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. That's okay. No problem. I like that. I like that answer, Robert, because... Uh, to me, that speaks of like seeing the truth or at least being honest with experience. And remember last class I said, 
that R.C. Sproul doesn't really, in my opinion, this is the biggest fault of that first couple of chapters, he doesn't draw in that valuable contribution from existentialism. Because if we're honest with ourselves, war is all around us. And that's a problem. The, na- the narrative or the teaching from culture does not fit reality. Only scripture does. So yeah, that, that's a good one. And last comment from Middle Group Reuben. Prayer. Wow. Amen. That is a great, humble answer. Yeah, prayer. We are helpless without the help of the Spirit. And prayer is a big thing missing. Amen. All right. Third group, Joy. On the back, I'm really confused. That's a great question. <laughs> the question was then, do creeds play a role in the formation of our spiritual life in, in, a, in a healthy spiritual walk? What do, you, what do you all think? We'll open that up. I, I have it on here, but maybe one or two comments to that before we move on. Okay? Yeah, Apostles' Creed was said. Uh, Robert said yes. What about on the other side? What, okay, so they're helpful. How? And what about on the other side? Okay. So, so that, that's a good comment, Bob. I'm going to ask you. The Bible wasn't written as a creed. Can you expand that for me? That might be helpful for this discussion. He's saying that the danger of creeds is that we might become lazy and we simply end up repeating something that someone else has written without knowing why it's there or what, what it's there for. Okay, Scripture is written from a life context. I think that's really important. So I think there is value. We're going to get to that here in a second, Joy. But that's a really good question. A creed, a creed is not special revelation. A creed is not special revelation. Amen. Wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. It can be a guide for what you believe, a useful framework. Okay, one more comment, and then I'm going to ask these guys to finish, and we've got to move on. No, go ahead. Please, take it away. Take it away. That is a great point. Clarity of the gospel. I, yeah. You can't start anywhere else. It reminds me of what Jonathan Edwards did when he took over his congregation. He preached the gospel for something like five years, and a revival started then. Seriously. He just, Jonathan Edwards, when he took over his church, he resolved to preach the gospel. For like five years. I think it was three, to, three or five years. I can't remember. But it was a long time. And that's when the revival started in the church. He, had to, he literally just preached the gospel for like three, three years. I know it was at least three. And that's when a revival started. So, okay. So, I think those are good points. Now, let's, let's actually get into the book and answer the question when I turn off this light. How do we get what he is calling systematic theology? Because that's really what this survey is about. And what the class is about in some sense, even though I'm taking a little different tact here. So, what are the sources? Well, you have to say, as a, as a believer, that the Bible is the source of theology. It's the only one we have. And it's completely authoritative. Now, he lists some, and this is something that I have a minor problem with, he lists some things there without qualifying. I agree with him that those other things are sources of theology, but I would put them at like 11, or you might even say like 111, or 1011. Because if you don't start here, these are all going to be useless, right? We know how that turned out. We have examples. We have thousands of years of Christianity to see what happens when you don't start here. The Reformers called it sola scriptura, but it, it's fundamental. Like You could even just wipe the rest of these off and you'd be okay. I think that's kind of what Bob was getting to earlier. You can get rid of everything else except Scripture. You could live in isolation and you could still have good theology. I believe that. We, we know of prisoners who... I read a story once of a prisoner who actually got his Bible and was saved through 
toilet paper that came out of a person they'd eaten. And he was, he was assigned to muck out, I think it was a Korean in a Japanese prison camp. And he was assigned to muck out the, the toilets. And in there they had used Bibles. And he became a Christian through that. Like, this is a true story. I'll have to find that maybe and give that to you. But I think that illustrates for me that the rest are not necessary. However, we cannot say that the rest are not sources of theology because as humans we learn through mediation. In other words, we also learn from some of the things I think you, I heard you talking about, parents, families, churches, friends, right? Creeds, councils. We learn from these things because we can't escape. If you ever hear anyone say that I hate my culture, well, they're essentially saying they hate themselves because you cannot escape. We all have culture, right? We all have things that influence our learning besides scripture. Sometimes it's good. And unfortunately, most times it's bad. I would, that, that's the way I would land on that. Also, I would say great minds. Now, this is an interesting one to think about it. But do you think in church history of the great minds of the men who have written, like I would say Augustine is one. He's definitely one. I would say in the modern day, we have a couple. I would put John Piper up there as one of those guys who's really gotten it. There are many. Martin Luther, Calvin, Jonathan Edwards. I mean, there are great minds who I will never achieve that height and probably neither will you, but that's okay. God has given great minds. Yeah, Deffenbaugh. (laughs) Now, here's the real question that I wanted to get at the heart of the survey with. Is experience a source of theology? Is experience a source of theology? Do we look to experience to teach us about God? Okay, we think so. We got some yeses. So is it a source? Okay. Okay. Okay, it's a source for our faith. Okay. Yeah. See, this is very important to understand because it's a validation. Experience, you know why? Our experiences can lie to us. We don't know exactly, even, even if we think we have it 100%, there could, be, there could be an error with our experience. We may experience something that God does and think about it wrongly, and God wanted to do something else. Go ahead. That's right. And, and in fact, think of like how many of the major religions started with an experience that they thought was from the Lord and ended up to be a demon. Islam? How about Joseph Smith? Right? So their exp- I don't see what I'm saying. I don't actually deny their experience. I think they had an experience. I think it just wasn't what they thought it was, right? So experience is a validation. It actually helps our faith. And it, it's kind of like what God uses in our lives to show us the truth of Scripture. Because we lack faith sometimes. Hmm. That's a good one. Bob is saying that experience can also actually, and I didn't put this on there, and you're right, Bob, it can challenge our faith because of those, those unique situations like Job or Solomon or you know, someone recounting those. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so, Stan. Mm-hmm. It can be a source. That's a good question. So are you saying, do people use experience as a source of theology? Certainly. Existentialists base their theology on experience. I'm saying as a Christian, it is not a source. I'm saying 
right-thinking believers, scriptural teaching, experience is not a source of theology. Yeah, that's a good point. A lot of people leave their experience as their only theology. That's right. And that is a major... That's probably why right there. A big part of it. So... Yeah, now that's that's an interesting thing. We're going to talk about that in Special Revelation. So, experience, experience as a source of theology. Yeah, okay. That's a good point. So, for Abraham, she said, you know, what, what, how do, what do we do with Abraham's experience? A unique theophany or something like that. So, that's, that's really good. Thanks for bringing that up. Okay, we're going to move on because I do want to get through some of my material tonight. <laughs> what role has... So in the I'm talking about U.S. right now because that's our context. And does systematic theology play, and what role should it play? Well, I love this quote here. It says, "If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things. And there's no room for the great." I think he's saying what Sproul is saying here is that theology. Does it play? Has it played? It can and does lead us to glorify God. It leads us to worship Him. So how about some of the bad roles? He says that it can kind of be an esoteric system of ideas to put biblical theology into. Okay, And think about this. What is this? Well, when you live okay, and you only go and learn, all you're doing without experience, without living out, your faith is putting those things in something that has no correlation to life. You're just, okay, I know Jesus is God. I'll put that here in this filing system. You know, And that's one of the biggest dangers of systematic theology is that it takes things out of the biblical context and allows us to file them without experiencing the truth of the Bible. Okay. Second, I think it can be used as a means of control. In other words, you don't fit my system of theology, you're out of my church. You're out of my life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut off fellowship with you. And that has happened in many churches. Splits over things that are not. Now, there are some things that we need to be careful about, but it can be used as a source of division and control. However, it does help our minds categorize. It helps us combat false teaching. And we see God's plan for us more clearly. These things are good. These things are good in our lives. Think about on this one, combats false teaching. How are we to know that Gnosticism, in other words, the fact that there's some special knowledge out there that saves us is wrong? Well, we go to Colossians and we read what Paul says about Jesus. How do we know that Mormon teaching is wrong? We go to you know, the scripture and we, we read that Jesus is God, right? We go to the scripture to combat false teaching. Okay, these are some things he says, and I'm going to skip over them briefly here, but basically, and I'll probably read this one here. I doubt I will ever come up with an insight that has not already been worked over in great detail by greater minds than mine. In fact, when it comes to theology, I'm not interested in novelty at all. That's a really good concept. Like, if you, if you are on the opposite side of, like, 2,000 years of teaching, it really should give us pause. <laughs> Go back and say... What did I get wrong, and how did I get there? Humility, again, like I talked about. Okay, now this is my kind of critique here before we, before we finish the introduction. What role should it play in that it doesn't 
often play. In other words, what are we missing? What value is there that we don't see often? Well, I think it helps us match experience with revelation and reality. Psalm 73, like Bob was talking about. When, when we have a different experience, Scripture helps us. When we have good experience, Scripture helps us to put meaning to that experience. When there's joys in our life, how much greater are those joys when we can look at Scripture and confirm them with what God says? I would find my baby useless. I mean, I mean from a Christian perspective now, I'm thinking like, maybe not useless, but like empty joy. But I know now what God has created in us. He's given us the ability to make something in his image and, and just the great joy of filling that. So that's the positive side that scripture tells us. So I think that's, that's one positive that it does. And I think this is probably the most important. It helps us in the cycle of obedience to understand and love God and his ways and the world more. In other words, when I obey what scripture teaches me, I go back to Scripture and I see, wow, God really helped me live that way. And then I continue living that way and it increases my joy. Many of us here have walked with the Lord for years and we see that increasing joy as we live in obedience. And we go back to the Word. And then we live it out and we go back and we live it out and we go back. Right? It has to be a cycle in our lives. C.S. Lewis said, theology is like a map. Merely learning and thinking about Christian doctrines, if you stop there, is less real and less exciting than the sort of thing my friend got in the desert. He's talking about a friend who visited the desert. Doctrines are not God. They are only a kind of map. But that map is based on the experience of hundreds of people who really were, I don't know if I like this language here, in touch with God. I would say believers trusted in God. Experiences compared with which many thrills of pious feelings you and I are likely to get in our own are very elementary and very confused. And secondly, if you want to get any further, you must use the map. Let me condense that into maybe something that I agree with a little more. Doctrine is a map we must use to know God. But if we don't use the map and just sit there and stare at it and not walk, it's useless. Does that make sense? It's like having a map to the greatest treasure ever and just like, oh, I'm going to get that treasure. I'm going to get it. And you go to sleep and the next day you do the same thing. I think that's kind of what he's trying to say here. Used, not experienced, theology is useless. All right. Sure. Mm -hmm. Theology should help us minister to other people. Yep. It does help us. And that's a good use of that map of doctrine. That's good. So that's that's an important foundation. Now let's talk about Revelation. We're going to breeze through this because this is pretty easy stuff, and I think this is. I'm going to talk about it, and if you have questions, we can stop. But this is the not the main point I want to get to tonight. Psalm 19 and Romans 1 are classic passages on general revelation. Simply, we see in the world who God is. The heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1 talks about the inner testimony of God on the conscience of man. General revelation. We do we learn through nature. He says yes on page 18. And then he talks about mediate versus immediate general revelation. In other words, something that we have to have mediated through to us. In other words, God created the world and that mediate, that world mediates his character to us. But he wrote on our hearts, it says in Romans 2, his glory. That's a paraphrase. Talks about the fact that his law is written on us. And so we have an inward testimony of God as well, the conscience. So those are two, the two kinds of general revelation. 
in nature and in our hearts. These, now what do we know about these? Can these save or no? What can, what can these do? That's right, no, these cannot save. What can these do? That's right, they leave us without excuse and that condemns us. Exactly, Ellen, that's right. They leave us without excuse. So thank the Lord that we have special revelation. Now, this is an interesting definition. I don't know if I've ever heard it defined this way. But I think it's actually pretty good. I don't know, what are your thoughts? He says that special revelation is not is a kind of information that not everyone in the world has opportunity to receive. I don't know. Yeah, it makes us grateful. I, I, amen, that's right. I think he's on to something here because not everyone does receive special revelation. When we think about events like the burning bush, how many people got to see that? One. Damascus Road for Paul, well, one saw it. Some other people saw something funny going on, but... Yeah, there's heard. Yeah. We have person. So these are some types of special revelation he categorizes. Events. Person. Not persons. One person. Jesus. The highest special revelation. And I would say writing. Or records. Because we type now, right? (laughs) But some form of record. The Bible. Primarily here. 2 Timothy 3.16. So these are what we would call special revelation or things that God... Now, I think... Now, here's maybe something we might... I don't know. I think he would present it this way. He didn't say this in the book, but a Reformed person might present this as some kind of like the history of redemption, redemptive history. That, that's a kind of word they use, redemptive history. And so he would say that special revelation contains redemptive history. I don't know if we'd say it quite that way. We might say something like special revelation leads us to know God better in a way we might not otherwise and to trust in Him. Um, I'm open to comments on that one, on what exactly we would define it as. But I'm, that, that seems like a fair paraphrase for us. Because Moses' revelation of the burning bush wasn't... It showed him who God was, but it wasn't like redemptive. Like, it aided in the process, but it wasn't redemptive. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's fine. Yeah, amen. Systematic theology can draw us away from being Christ-centered. Yeah, to know Him. Joy? Yep, amen. It is true. We will have. If we're chosen by God, we will have special revelation. Yeah, that's right. So, I don't want to dwell too long here. This is, this is not... I mean, I agree almost with everything he says in the book. He doesn't get into the reform perspective on redemptive history or anything, but I just... I agree, and I think those were good points. Yeah. So, what I do want to get into, though, tonight with the next you know, five, six minutes is... Scripture, I would say, now after that survey, we're going to have to do this next time, but I would say this is the crux of like our culture today. And, and it's not a question of, you know, we'll cover this. It's not a question of inspiration. It's not even really a question of infallibility or inerrancy. I think this, this is really the question that it is. And so we got we to gotta talk about that. And we won't get there tonight, but when, see... The problem for me is like many, many seminaries and many, they teach you about these things here and this, but they, they fall low on authority and sufficiency. And so this is the issue in our culture, I believe. Christian culture. No, he doesn't. And do you see why I put that here? Like, and this is, a, this is where, again, he's a great author, but this is a lacking part. And that's why I put it in brackets and I put like exclamation, question, exclamation, like where is the question of sufficiency? 
And to my knowledge, I've read, I've read a lot. He doesn't talk about it at all. I think we need to, we need to tackle that here. But let's, let's at least start with this here for a few minutes. Really, inspiration is a doctrine talking about the Holy Spirit, isn't it? It's, it's not a question of, you know, how, but instead a question of who. And so, one of the problems I had, though, was, you know, you guys know the passage in 2 Peter 1.21, talking about, what, what does that say? Anyone know that off heart? It says, men, paraphrase it, just paraphrase it for me, Bob. Yeah, it's talking about inspiration, not from man. It says, men never had a prophecy of their own desire. Yep, and it says, men always moved by the Holy Spirit prophesied and wrote scripture. Now, he made a statement that says, the Holy Spirit's work in this regard is nowhere defined in scripture, but I would actually have to say it is right here. And, and we can actually infer it from other places. I'm not trying to proof text either. This is a passage on interpretation of Scripture. And so, I feel like maybe he, you know, misstepped a little. It's okay. I haven't written a book on systematic theology. I'd probably misstep a lot. But since you've read it, most of you've read it, you have to reckon with this, this passage right here. When, it, when we think about who did it. In other words, who caused the men to write? And that passage is clear that it was God. And I think that's something that we're missing that we need to talk about. So in other words, it's the source and not the method when we're talking about inspiration. And I do agree, it's verbal. You, you ever hear the word verbal plenary inspiration or verbal inspiration? That's not talking about spoken. It's talking about the words. And I think you read that. Those of you who read the passage read that it's the words, right? Because we know much of Scripture actually was not dictated by God. And so it's the words that are inspired. In other words, the words were given by the Holy Spirit. Um, I really liked your comment earlier, Reuben, because I think here too, there's a tendency within us and evangelicals to miss the work of the Holy Spirit in, in the church and through prayer and through our lives as believers. And I think this is one area we can, at least, you know, it's not the crux of the argument in culture, it's not the crux of the issue, but it's, a, it's an important thing to think about. Bob said John's Gospel talks about when the Spirit comes, you'll understand these things. So, so I, think, I think, you know, if I was to critique cautiously, that would be one of the things. that You know, I think the Scripture is very clear on that. All right. As we part, what did you write down for your definition of inerrancy? Anyone brave enough to share? Barbara. Nothing untrue in whatever statement. It's a pure statement. What else? Cannot err, cannot be wrong, cannot be mistaken. Good, good. What else, Paul? I'll just add in the original. Um, in the original, okay, that's good. Paul wants to add in the original manuscripts. That's good. That's good, Paul. Right, man. Never misses. Never misses. Yep. Superintended by God. Good. All of those things are good. I'm going to leave you with this. We're not. We're not going to cover. Those are all great. I want to put forward to you. That this is the very simplest definition you can give of inerrancy as far as the scripture. You can't get around it. And I love this definition. Now it's a little technical, but for every proposition X, if X, then X. In other words, for whatever the Bible says, if it says it, then it's true. If, like, I really struggled. I was sitting in seminary class one day and he said, how many of you can give me a good definition of inerrancy right now? I was like, oh, I can't do it. Like, he's like, well, don't feel bad if you can't. 
We ask graduates, and they can't do it either. And this is the best one because it doesn't add anything that's not needed. Now, Paul was right. Okay, It is in the original manuscripts. Okay, We know there are copying errors. But this is a really good definition because the Bible doesn't speak in scientific terms. Right? It doesn't, its goal is not to give us a scientific definition of the world. Its goal is to give us truth, to know God, and to know His Son, Jesus Christ. And so... This is a very technically sound definition. So if anyone asks you, you know, what does it even mean that the Bible is infallible? Or what does it mean that it's inerrant? I would say, whatever the Bible says, and that's true. Any comments before we close? Mm. Yeah, that's good. So Bob is saying that even though that may be a good definition, sometimes in our culture, we, they don't even agree truth is something that we can value. And I had planned to give you, a, that. that is one of the questions on my next exercise, you know, like, what are some problems that arise with that kind of definition? And what are some problems that might arise in the church? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I put the baby ahead of the bathwater here, however you want to say that. I know that's the wrong use of analogy, but really you're right. Like Jim is saying that authority or sufficiency really is a better way to couch that, I think. Yeah, is, is the right approach to our cultural issues. And yes, I agree. But he didn't start there. Which maybe he should have, but, you know, we, we, yeah. So, okay, why don't we close in prayer um, and be done for the night.